You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups. Our guests share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns, and the more difficult seasons of their lives and careers. But they're also sharing with us how they moved on and up and through to keep creating and inspiring others to build lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your lucky and plucky host, Liz Bohannon. Ah, success. What is it? How do we define it? How do we be it, do it? I love that on this show, we are a group of people who are coming together saying, hey, for those of us who have kind of chosen a path that might feel a little windy or in the wilderness, one of the opportunities, challenges that we have is figuring out what does success look like for us. And I actually think that's a huge gift. If you have chosen a path where success isn't necessarily linear or super well-defined, What it does is it forces us into a space of asking those deep, dark, not deep, dark, deep, we're just going to say deep, juicy questions about what is success and what do we want out of life and how do we measure that? And our next guest, she has chosen a path and a career and a vocation that I would say is, yeah, it's, it's, it's more in the wilderness. The path of success is a little bit less defined. Bianca measures her success through personal responses that she hears from her readers. She feels a sense of success and accomplishment when she gets a message from an individual consumer of her art about how her poetry has impacted them. She has now dedicated herself to her grandmother's legacy by creating a space for not just herself, but for other poets at the Ruth Stone House. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation, which includes, by the way, a special treat of hearing Bianca read one of her poems out loud to us, which just feels really special. So settle in, ideally maybe with a warm cup of tea, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Bianca, I am so excited about having you on the show and getting to know you a little bit more. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Liz. It's awesome to be here. Will you share with our listeners who might not be familiar with you or your work, just give us a little bit of the 30-second elevator pitch. Who are you today? How would you answer that question? And then we're going to rewind and go back and kind of peel back the layers on how you got there. But where where are we today? Yeah, uh, I'm a poet. Um, I work as a poet. I consider that my full-time profession. I publish books of poetry. Um, I also do some hybrid poetry and art books. I also teach. So I teach poetry workshops um, through an organization I started, a nonprofit, in about 2013 called the Ruth Stone House, uh, which was created in honor of my late grandmother, the poet Ruth Stone. Hmm. And this nonprofit is completely dedicated to poetry and the book arts. Um, and we're in Vermont. And so through that organization, I do poetry workshops. I do manuscript consults. We host readings. We host a writing retreat every year. And we do letterpress printing. Oh, cool. That's yeah. awesome. I'm I'm struck by how simply... And confidently, you answered, I am a poet. Yeah. And then you followed up. And there was like, there's all these other things. So you are actually a lot of other things. You are a teacher. You're an entrepreneur. You're a leader. You're a arts advocate. There's obviously a lot that is rolled up under this vocation of being a poet. But it seems like to you, all of that falls under the umbrella 
of being a poet? Or maybe is it that that's just the most important like essence of who you feel you are in the world? There was definitely a period after I am a poet, not a comma. And I just kind of want to explore that. Yeah, I, I think it's a really important point because one thing that happens with poets is that they don't feel very confident in saying mm. I'm a poet. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't feel like it's a profession. And I think one of the things that I really care about in my work is undoing that assumption that being a poet isn't an actual job because it doesn't really fit into uh, a more capitalistic um, mainframe of like what it means to have a job and uh, contribute something to the world. And it's, you know, it's one of the oldest professions out there, right? So, um that and prostitution but <laughs> poets and prostitution and that's the name of her next book folks <laughs> uh it's kind of the name of my last book almost oh. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah so you know so for me everything my my life as a poet really informs everything else i do so while writing actual poems on the page even publishing books with a very good publisher of course is not bringing in a lot of the money that I use to survive. I do that work by teaching and uh, doing one-on-one -on -one work with people and their manuscripts. And also my husband is also a poet and he actually does work a nine to five job, uh, you know, at like a water engineering place. Okay. Where, you know, he, he too has an MFA in poetry from Columbia and he, he does do that nine to five. Um, but if somebody asks him what he did, mm. you know, I, I hope that, you know, he, he would say writer first, but yeah, we both, you know, we navigate, we navigate the professions to try and, you know, whatever you have to do to be a poet. Uh, but the poetry comes first for me as a, mm. as what I do. I'm interested in learning more about what it's like to be in a profession where, I mean, I have to imagine, and I don't know what the metrics are for poets, but you've got to be in the top smaller percentage as far as like success metrics go in your mm -hmm. entire profession. And and yet you're like, but this still from a commercial standpoint, this thing that I am creating and putting out into the world is still not enough. That's just very different than a lot of other professions where it's like, okay, if you interview the top 5% of engineers, doctors, lawyers, you know, teachers, they're fiction writers, fiction writers, that their profession is that. So talk to us a little bit about what is that? How do you define success as a poet when that kind of like those external metrics are like very different for a poet than they are for a lot of other professionals? Yeah, I was talking about this recently with a poet friend of mine um, and how her stepfather was a very famous poet. He's passed on now, but um, they were just they just signed a contract to get his another uh, book of his poems out. And, you know, it was only like a couple, you know, under five thousand uh, dollar advance for that. And we were both just talking about how the gulf is so enormous between mm. like what an advance would be for fiction writer with his level of success mm. um, versus what a poet's going to get. Um, and of course that purely is because uh, poetry doesn't sell the same way that fiction sells yeah. or nonfiction sells. So it's not that the publishers don't want to give you that money. It's just that it doesn't make any sense for them. Um, but it's true that even even the you know the Pulitzer Prize winning poets are are still uh, it's it's still they're not rich right so um, of course there's some poets who uh, I think Ocean Vuong is a really good example of a poet who has sort of passed over into a different level of success than most mm -hmm. poets are um, he's an incredible poet so he deserves all his all his success. Um, but he also wrote a book of fiction hmm. um, that is getting turned into a film and, you know, things like that. And yeah. um, there's different, you know, a lot of poets will sublimate their poetry with other kinds of writing to expand upon their success. And it's, I don't believe that it's 
you know, part, I, I struggle with this a lot lately because it's like, I do really, I don't want to have to constantly be worrying about money, Mm -hmm. but there's also that you just want a lot of people to read your work and you want a lot of people to experience what it is that you're offering them to experience. Right. So like the whole power behind poetry is being read. Um, the creation of the poem is completely linked to the experience the reader has with the poem. So you want your poems to be read. Um, but poetry has always been a more quiet art. You know, it's always mm -hmm. been a little bit um, less read because it requires a lot of the reader. Yeah. So mm. the way that our, and, I, and I'll get to answering your question more directly, but um, well, from a small tangent here, but I think that the way that our educational system works in the Western world is antithetical to experiencing poetry. And it's usually a small unit in school on the haiku or on mm -hmm. Robert Frost. Um, maybe you have a really cool, cool teacher who's showing you some more contemporary works and showing you the possibilities of poetry. But I think it's really just most people have a very antiquated idea of what poetry is and they think, you know, it's it's that dreaded period in English class where you have to unpack a Shakespearean sonnet and it just doesn't make any sense to you and it doesn't resonate with you and it just doesn't feel like it's relevant to your life. Where really, meanwhile, there's this whole like rich culture of poetry mm. that when people do stumble across it and fall in love with it, it's really the best thing ever. Mm. Um, you know, knowing somebody who doesn't write poetry but loves poetry and reads it is they're the best people ever. Hmm. I just, I just revere those people so much um, because I think it informs all their work too. Hmm. Right. So, mm -hmm. but I would say like in measuring success for a poet, you're getting published. Right. So poetry places do not usually pay very much money, if any money at all. There are some places of course that pay good, like the New Yorker um, and the baffler and things like that places like that but a lot of places don't pay anything and the poet still is very grateful to be published because they really want people to read their work and you can measure success by getting feedback from people who are reading it right so when i get a dm in my instagram that's like i'm just taking you know, i never do anything like this but i really just wanted to let you know that i've been having a really hard mm. time lately and your poems have been just keeping me going and i'm like mm. okay this is this is worth every penny mm. and i measure success in that way you know i love that i have a friend who has recently started writing a lot of poetry he's from a, a friend from a long time ago and it's so interesting i mean his poetry's meant a lot to me especially just over the last year i would say it's kind of one of those things that when i like log into instagram it's my number one thing to see, you know, when no, it's I like you that. see the familiar thing, you're like, oh, yes, there's a new one. And I read every one and I've sent it to, you know, I'll send it to people if I feel like it'll touch them. And I was chatting with another friend and being like, man, he's doing all this work right now and I'm just loving it. And I'm feeling so touched by his work. By the way, his name is James Pearson. If anybody's listening, you can go find him on the Internet. Definitely check it out. But it was interesting because this other friend was literally like, oh, that's cool. What is that guy doing these days? And I thought it was so interesting because I was like, I literally just told you yeah. but it was like, there's like this disconnect between it's like, I'm like, he's creating this beautiful, meaningful work that's like really created this like safe, tender space that I just find myself gravitating towards. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But like, what does he do? Right. And it's just like so interesting that it's like without having... But being like, well, surely he's not making a living off of that. So the next most interesting question is, what does he do for a nine to five to pay his rent? The answer is, I have yeah. no idea. And also, I don't really care that much. Where it's yeah, like, because what he's doing is like creating this beautiful yeah. thing in the world. It's just like a very interesting that wouldn't have happened if I was like, you know, he's done this really cool thing and he made this super cool product that I'm using all the time. No one would have followed that up with like, OK, cool. But what does he do? It's like, I just told you what he's doing. I know. He's making like, this well, thing in the he's, world. He's plumbing the depths of the unconscious <laughs> and asking questions about the nature of existence. Is that not enough for you? Do you want to hear about his, you know, his, his, his job managing a Whole Foods? Like, right. what's... <laughs> oh, okay. So let's hear, you mentioned that your grandmother was a renowned poet, I believe. Yeah. Will you share a little bit? So it sounds like this 
vocation, this calling, this part of your identity and craft is somewhat in your blood, is in your family, that there's some sort of history. Will you just kind of tell us about that? What was it like to grow up with poetry being something that was kind of embedded into your family story and identity? Yeah, I think that my mentality about and pride about being a poet is a lot to do with how I grew up because my grandmother was so incredibly dedicated to poetry and any successful and real poet um, is like this. But she was maybe more unique in that she shared it with her children Hmm. really strong like why would you you know be a doctor when you could you know write poetry um wow and you know it wasn't an environment of you know what are you gonna what school are you gonna go to what are you Hmm. gonna do with your life professionally it was very much just like very in the moment you know emphasis on reading writing and making art and that was really, I think, the best part of my childhood was mm. this obsessive, almost manic uh, emphasis on mm. creativity mm. and it being not only okay, but encouraged mm. and lauded. And I was, I s- went with her to readings all the time. I, s- I had a single mother mm. um, and... I spent a lot of time with my grandmother uh, and so I would end up going with her to lots of readings and going with her to teach when she was teaching at uh, SUNY Binghamton and I would sit in on her classes and stuff like that. So I was very familiar with the culture of poetry and she always, you know, she had this, this house that we'd been fixing up with the root, the root stone house. Uh, we'd been fixing up to convert, into a writing retreat space and community space for poetry. You know, she would have lots of gatherings with poets there and everyone would show up and, you know, be drinking wine and reading poems late into the night. And even if if somebody was there that didn't write poems, she would be like, and you're writing a poem too for this, you know, poetry game that we're playing. Um, So that was really, you know, a unique setup for me. And I was also very good at, you know, something I was good at. I wasn't really good at other things in school. Mm. Like I was terrible at math and it's terrible at spelling. And I just wasn't a very organized person. So it gave me a lot of confidence to write. So it was Mm. something that I pursued, although I didn't think that I needed to go to school for it later in life. I thought it was just part of me and that I Mm. knew everything. Um, about it. Um, I'm curious if we can dive in a little bit because I think oftentimes, you know, folks here, when somebody has like a family history or they just had exposure or even kind of like a leg up in an area that maybe someone else didn't, I think that there can be this sense of like, oh, well, of course she's successful. Look, from the time she was born, she was she had somebody teaching this or affirming this. And I think there's obviously you can't deny that exposure matters and representation matters and having seen that and encouragement matters. And I'm also interested if you experienced any of the shadow side of that familiarity. Like, was there ever a sense of pressure or expectation that you feel like you experienced because it was so valued that like you from the beginning, did it feel like it matters if I'm good at this or not, because this is part of who I am or part of what my family values. Yeah. Were there just any harder parts of that for you that you experienced as you kind of navigated and formed your own identity? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Starting with all the the beautiful things about my childhood that um, have influenced who I am and paved the way for my life professionally. Well, I think that instigated my passion. I'd say that what it did do for me was give me a lot of confidence around poetry and not a lot of people have that Mm. to start off with. What it didn't give me was a greater sense of um, autonomy in that Mm. I could go off and make my own way as easily. Mm. I think there was a lot, first of all, 
they were emotionally dysfunctional people. And while they loved creative writing and art, it wasn't a structured environment. It wasn't an environment that was paying a lot of attention to other things that were happening. Mm. Um, and it wasn't really setting me up to be uh, successful, uh, maybe academically. And also, it was kind of a bubble um, of mm. a certain kind of poetry and a certain kind of way of living that was very bohemian. You know, I ended up going to undergraduate school and uh, taking creative writing classes. And I wasn't really sure about it at first. You know, I thought, oh, maybe I should study uh, lit and, you know, feminist studies, I think was what I was, thought I was going to do at first. Also, I like that the more practical option in your mind was lit and feminist studies. <laughs> I, you know, feel like, like, I feel wow. like that gives you a great picture of where on the spectrum you are when that's the more practical choice and option. <laughs> I know, and it so wasn't. And I was so was terrible. When we talk about like a un underread world, it's like, you know, lit theory, you know, deep lit theories. Um in in academia, oof, I just wasn't cut out for it. I couldn't I couldn't I was terrible at writing papers. I had great ideas, but I just did not execute them and mm. um and I was very shy and it just I I I didn't I couldn't I couldn't digest theory at all. What started to happen in taking creative writing classes with this amazing poet named Benjamin Grossberg is that I started to realize that there was a lot about poetry that I didn't know. And it was a lot of different kinds of poetry I wasn't exposed to. And uh, I, it just was very humbling. And, mm. you know, learning how to talk to other people about their work, you know, mm. learning how to take more criticism, like, being like, oh, you know, actually, you know, maybe I want to try writing different kinds of poetry, you know, experimenting with different kinds of things. And I really had to break away from my family in uh, in a lot of ways mm. in order to explore more. And it all happened again in when I went to get my MFA at NYU in New York City, a whole new slew of very humbling experiences uh, you know, I showed up thinking I knew, knew everything and I just felt like it didn't, you know, it was like all these poets that I'd never read and everyone was writing different things than I was. And nobody, you know, people weren't really reading my grandma. I remember at that time, it was like, she wasn't as popular as like, you know, John Ashbery and James Tate. And I was like, and, and I felt like that was really humbling for me hmm. too. And I started to, you know, just, I felt like I was starting from the bottom again. Um, I got, but I was getting exposed to new things and I didn't know what my poetry was and I didn't know who I was. And I start, you know, I was, you know, meanwhile, just doing all the things that people do in life is that, you know, one is a kind of constant student and, you know, you think, you know, everything and you really don't. And I think, you know, sometimes I, I think about how you know, a little frustrated at my grandma because I feel like she cut off a lot of opportunities with different kinds of writers and different, uh, different schools that, you know, that she sort of dismissed. And, uh, but that's, then I was fine. That was her way. And I, I had to cut out and find my own way. And, um, it's interesting. You mentioned the, um, creative, right? Like learning how to take criticism. Uh -huh. And I think that that is something that would be so, I think that's a really unique part of your, profession that I'm super drawn to like I can't and maybe it exists I just don't know what it is but I've been a part of a few very casual kind of writers groups or even poetry circles and you know how it goes as you go and you write and then you share your work and then literally you sit and people just give you feedback and they critique it or you get your story yep. passed around and people mark it up and they say what worked or didn't work or this made me feel this way and I don't think that's what you were intending whatever it is yeah. and then you take it and it's like this it's a quite a high form of yeah for people to actually read your things and then offer you perspective and feedback is a gift, right? Where you're like, oh, I'm literally showing up into this space. And part of the benefit of this space is that you're going to critique and push and illuminate this. And that has to, I imagine, over time, change your 
spirit and ability, how you view feedback. I will say I do not naturally view feedback as a gift. No. <laughs> Unless it's amazing and like, I'm yes. so awesome and I totally nailed it. Then I'm like, thank you for that gift. I know. But if it's remotely hard or <laughs> remotely critical, my my natural inclination is not, thank you for that gift. I'm trying really hard and doing a lot of self-work over trying to get there, but it's not my natural place. But it would just, you know, I imagine like, oh my gosh, what would it be like if you just like on a Tuesday night sat in a room and shared other parts of your life, you know, or like, hey, I want to tell you about the fight I got in with my partner last night. And then can you all offer feedback on that? (laughs) Or like, you know, there's like, but wouldn't that, wouldn't the world totally change if that was just culturally, we literally entered into spaces going, your feedback is a gift. And that doesn't mean that I have to take it. And it actually doesn't even mean that it's right or that I need to agree with it, but that there is some gift that is embedded in that, that you would be willing to reflect that back to me. I feel like the world would look pretty different if more people had an experience of that not being a threatening or demeaning experience, but something that there was actually a level of kind of like, oh, we're doing this because we actually love you and believe in you and we want your work to be better, which I think is the hope of how all feedback should be given. Yeah, that's the hope, right? I mean, the problem with feedback is that sometimes the people giving you feedback aren't giving you good feedback, right? Or they have some other sort of agenda or they're not really, they're not seeing what you're doing for what it is. Mm -hmm. So there's really an art to giving feedback. Mm -hmm. And and it's, yeah, yeah, it applies to all areas of life. And I think, I think in our culture, we're getting, maybe getting better at talking about giving feedback and being like, okay, you know, like a boss being like, okay, I really want to hear from my employees. Like, what am I doing wrong? Uh, so I can improve and like th- what emotional maturity that takes, mm-hmm. you know, it takes a lot. Whereas mm-hmm. usually people get defensive and they start, you know, and they reject it and it just doesn't make anything better. It makes things worse. In poetry, it's, it's almost doubly painful because in poetry, you're talking a lot about your personal experiences and your personal feelings. And like sometimes very, you know, your, the vulnerability level is very high. Um, you're also dealing with a form that is defined by its absence of meaning, right? Mm. So, and by that, I mean, like, uh, Keats's idea of negative capability, like being able to be in places on uncertainty and doubt, right? So mm. you kind of have to have readers that understand that and criticism should include that, right? So criticism should include the fact that you're giving us too much. We need to take some away. You know, you're not, you're not allowing enough ambiguity here so that the reader can come in and create meaning, you know, things like that. But, you know, when we're giving feedback, usually people want more information, right? So they're like, mm-hmm. I'm confused by this. Yeah. This yep. isn't working. And so it's easy for a poet to get defensive and be like, well, I meant it to be confusing or I didn't want to talk about that directly. Yeah. And then, then it becomes a question of, okay, but is it working, right? Like, you can want that, but is the poem good, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I shouldn't even, like, in a way, we want the experience of the art to be kind of effortless in terms of us, like, accepting it or surrendering to it um, and being like, I don't really know exactly what that means, but I'm feeling something, right? I'm mm-hmm. getting, I'm affected by it. It's hard to know. It's, so, as a poet and a teacher getting criticism and giving criticism are two very important parts of it. And it's easy to end up in an MFA program where nobody gets your poetry, right? Mm. And like the whole class is like, I don't get this. And the teacher isn't helping at all. You know, they're just sitting there letting it happen. And that can be really destructive. Mm. Um, Mm. And I've seen it happen to people all the time. In fact, Mm. I've you know, there's those experiences in the MFA program where everyone loved one person's poem and every workshop, it was like beloved. And they're always like, oh, you know, Eric always brings in bangers. And, you know, meanwhile, after the MFA, Eric never does anything, you know, doesn't Mm. publish a book, goes off and does something else. And then the person who everybody hated ends up making it, you know, so. I wonder if that's actually, those aren't accidental. Like, I wonder if that is like Eric how much of his continued creative process actually relied on that positive feedback loop 
mm-hmm. and kind of feeding that like, hey, as long as I'm getting immediate and positive feedback, that feels really good. So I'm going to keep doing this thing. Whereas I'm not trying to improve. Yeah. Whereas like a Susie Q who just like totally gets overlooked or gets negative feedback or criticism if she keeps going, there is a real, like, obviously her love for the process of creating poetry is actually separate and different and distinct from her love of how other people treated her because of this thing. That right. seems like it would build a grittier, more longstanding commitment to something because it's like, oh, I'm going to do this. I, I think about it a lot with like, I cry all of the time when I see street performers. It's Mm -hmm. just a thing that I just see a street performer (laughs) and I start crying, especially when people are ignoring them completely. And I'm not crying out of pity for them because I don't pity them. I'm literally crying because I'm like, what we are getting and viewing right now is just like a love of this art form and of performing and of music or whatever it is they're doing that goes so deep that even though they are getting completely ignored they're going to show up again tomorrow and they're going to keep doing it. And there is something that is so moving and inspiring to me about that that feels completely different than I'm a rock star and I step out on stage and, you know, 10,000 people are chanting my name and throwing their underwear at me. And it's like, I don't know why you're doing this. It might be because you love the music, but it might be because you really love the sensation of being loved and adored. And when I walk past somebody in a subway, it feels so clean and pure that it's like, I know there's only one reason that you're standing here right now. And it's some deep seated need in you to bring your song or your creation or your art form into the world, regardless of how it's received, that is like deeply moving to me. I think, I think that's entirely hitting the nail on the head here because I struggle with it all the time. And there isn't a poet who doesn't, you know, that you want validation desperately, right? You, you want to hear that your, your work is liked and being read and, you know, we see this mirrored on social media too. Like you can get into an absolute trap of, of feeling this anxiety of like not being liked enough, not being shared, reshared, whatever enough and being like, what am I doing? I should just give up. Right. So I constantly have to keep coming back to the fact that I love playing with words and I love seeing what happens when I try to express something unexpressible in poetry and seeing what happens. And it's, it may be that no one will like it right now, that it won't, that I won't get it published, that I won't get the accolades, you know, that I'll never be talking to Terry Gross on NPR, you know, that, that very well may never happen. But I have to remember that I'm doing this because I really, really love it. And I, and I have a certain amount of faith, Mm. right? That if I'm doing it for the right, it's not even the right reasons, but if I'm doing it with a certain amount of authenticity to myself and my um, desire to communicate with other people authentically and imperfectly, that it will happen, you know, and mm-hmm. that it doesn't, you know, even if it's just one person standing on the subway platform crying, that it was totally worth spending all day there, you know, mm-hmm. because I mean, it's hard because it is art is about relating to other people. It mm-hmm. is about connection with other people and for them seeing your work and relating to it. Right. And at the same time, you can't rely on validation to keep going because, because it just may not happen for whatever reason. Um, Mm -hmm. if it's never happening, I would start wondering what it is I'm writing, you know, like that the world is that cold of a place (laughs) that it would reject everything I've written, you know, and I see this with people I talk to in manuscript consults and whatnot. And it's like, okay, well, you've been trying to get this book published for like 15 years and something has to change right so you you know coming back to this idea of feedback is that you really do kind of have to get humble uh and get really real with yourself and say is is what i'm doing actually what i think it's doing you know yeah, is, is it resonating is it working yeah 
Yeah, if part of the profession is I use words to help evoke an emotion or move someone to place A to B, even if that isn't necessarily defined, because as you said, I think I think it was really poignant about this idea that poetry might be one of the art forms that asks the most mm-hmm. of people that you can't just like you can't veg out and read poetry. There is a level of engagement and participation that's required, which is probably why it's not as widely accepted as, you know, Netflix. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, asking, it's such a fine, fine line as a person, as a creator, as an artist to receive feedback for the purposes of making your thing work while also separating yourself enough from the feedback that it doesn't sit in the driver's seat, that everything that I'm doing isn't for the purpose of good feedback, but that feedback still plays this part in it. And it actually is meaningful and valuable for whether or not it's doing what you're hoping it's doing in the world. Yeah, because it's not you they're talking about on the page. You know, it's not it's in a way it's not personal. It's it's not like they're criticizing you as a person. You're making art for other people. Right. So you should be able to to hear what people say about the art. Right. So you, you should have this sort of like communication about is it that's why it's so important to share your work with other people and get feedback. Yeah. Is because you need to know that. So I've become very obsessed with psychotherapy in the past two years as I've started it, <laughs> psychodynamic therapy. And it's interesting to be in a room talk based, like I've noticed how much it's like poetry because mm. you're sort of, you know, I was going to say, you know, we don't have people sitting around critiquing us as people and, you know, and saying, Oh, I'm not really seeing, you know, this isn't really working how you're acting to me, but that's kind of what's what there be is a little bit where it's like, okay, well, what you're saying and doing isn't really lining up with, with reality or, mm-hmm. you know, what your what your actual like hope for is in your life, you know, like, oh, you keep doing these things that are like, dis- like destructive and like destroying your life and you're doing them for a reason. Right. So it's kind of helpful to, too, to like, look at the reasons why we yeah. do things, you know, like, you want to stay hidden. You know, you don't want to face certain things. Yeah. I'm curious, will you tell us about as a very seasoned, accomplished, successful poet who it would be very easy to look at your bio and say, oh my gosh, she made it. And I think with you, maybe even the story of like, obviously she made it, you know, like, look, her grandmother was this accomplished poet. And then now she's super successful. And I'm sure it was just that way from the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Would you mind sharing with us a particular season or moment or obstacle that you faced in your journey where, you know, it's so easy once you've come through a hard thing and it all ended up working out okay to be like, well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and we can have a totally different story. But will you take us back as much as you can to the, like the present moment of one of those harder seasons and how it impacted you? Well, I said a bit about how it was a very humbling experience to be in um, higher academic settings with workshops and things like that and you know it's not I will say too that having my grandma be a poet it set me up like I said to be confident about poetry but it didn't give me anything on a plate that's for sure I had to work really hard Mm. um to get published and things like that um but if I could point to a time when I felt like I was really struggling i would say that it's actually very broad and pervasive and i'm still sort of in it right now Hmm. you know i've i had a lot that i'm grateful for in my in my childhood and in my life that we've talked about but i also had a lot of suffering and a lot Hmm. of trauma um Hmm. that i didn't know what to do with and i really didn't understand And I spent a lot of time essentially holding myself back Mm. from really enjoying my success, I'll say, Mm. um, enjoying my life as a poet because of this suffering. Right. So and I and I was really trying to get out of it 
for a Mm. long, long, I still, I'm trying to get out of it. Right. So I feel like I got, I started to get very obsessed with self-improvement. When I was living in New York city, I'd finished my MFA. I was, you know, met my husband, things were going well. And I had my first book out and I was one of the hardest years of my life when my first book Mm. came out. Mm. I felt like I was on a path of total Mm. (laughs) self-destruction. I, you know, I've struggled with anxiety and depression my entire life. And it had sort of reached this really intense pitch. Um, And I started thinking that it was because I needed to like, I needed to lose weight. Hmm. And I needed to um, start setting goals. I got very interested in goal-oriented work, stoic philosophies. And and it became this extremely distracting um, and and ironically self-destructive time for me. And it lasted Hmm. a very long time where I was constantly saying, I'm going to get better. I'm going to improve, you know, even the symptoms of my um, traumas, like, you know, drinking too much or eating too much or, you know, um, self-harming behaviors. I was really focused on how to get rid of those instead of the underlying problems, right? So it was all Mm -hmm. kind of leaking into my poetry a little bit, but Mm. I was focusing more on the symptoms. And I was doing this and it was really taking me away from my poetry, right? So I was, Mm. I was like, once I can get, once I can improve myself and do this self-help care, then I can really start being the poet I want to be. It's hard because a lot of those things have like great wisdom in them, but I wasn't ready for that wisdom, right? I couldn't really accept that wisdom until I really addressed the underlying problems. And it was really hard for me to well, we'll just enjoy my life, right? Um, I heard this incredible quote by this uh, psychotherapist on Twitter named Dr. Emily Anhalt, who said, healing and grief are very connected. As we start to feel better, we also realize that with the right support, we could have perhaps felt better a long time ago. Mm. By grieving the time we spent in pain, we allow ourselves to move forward in healing. Wow. So I think now in my life, I'm realizing that I could have taken a lot more opportunities, um, push myself further with uh, what I, where I wanted to be as a writer if I had gotten the help that I needed and grieved it. And now mm. I'm grieving the time that I lost. And I feel like now I'm setting myself up to just evolve as a writer right so i think we can really stay stuck in the same place for a long time trying to help ourselves in ways that just aren't helpful and we need other people to Mm. again coming back to that feedback like give us feedback of like is what i'm trying to do to help myself actually helping me or is it harming me yeah what was it for you that you feel like got you from I'm treating the symptoms and I'm kind of on this hamster wheel, but I'm not asking the deeper questions, which is, I feel like something a lot of us do because it's scary to open that up. You know, I literally yesterday was meeting with my therapist who asked me this question and I literally looked at her and I was like, I cannot authentically go there because in 45 minutes I have to lead a team meeting and you're asking me to like, and my as not a critique on her, but instead of just like what I'm doing is working for me right now, which is not asking myself that question. What was and the if question? I actually just ab- about how I'm handling something or like my oh. deepest feelings of, you know, allowing grief. And I'm just like, I can't I can't open that. I can't open that until I feel like I have a lot of time and space because once at least my experience with emotions is I'm pretty good at like. I mean, just it feels like it's scary. There can be a Pandora, a Pandora's box there in the sense that you're like, yeah. you really, truly 
start to go back and really understand where is this coming from and what is this woundedness and what is the fullness of these emotions that I'm feeling, there is a level of entering into a space where you're no longer in control. And so I say all of that. That was a rabbit trail to say, I think you doing that is something most of us do, right? Of kind of like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. So I'll fix this and I'll fix this and I'll fix this. But please don't ask me to go there. And I'm curious about what shifted for you. Like, what was it that made you finally at some point go, oh, maybe it's not about the goal setting. Maybe it's not about the weight loss. Maybe it's actually these deep, deep wounds that I have that I need to actually grieve and go back to. What gave you the courage or the impetus to do that? It was 2020. Okay. It was the pandemic. I was, I, you know, I had, a, I had a, at the time she was three years old, my daughter. Hmm. Um, and I had been trying to self-improve through all these different ways for for years. And I think plus just all the emotional shift that happened during the pandemic and the feelings of isolation, I suddenly hit this wall. And I remember I was at the beach with her at this lake. She was just playing in the sand and I just was looking out and I just was like, I'm scared. Like mm. I'm so scared about how I feel because now I have a child mm-hmm. and I don't know what to do. I don't know. I can't write. I can't read. I couldn't read anything. Like I mm. would look at things and nothing touched me. And that really scared me. Yeah. You know, as a, as a creative person, that's, that's just, it, it's like, you know, something, something is really, you know, needs to, to change, but <laughs> but how? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, by the luck of the draw, I just thought I'd try again with therapy. And I said to myself, I'm not going to do it the same way I did it before, which was Mm. just sort of taking whoever I could get and, um, hoping I did a lot of research on different kinds of therapists. And I found one that seemed really different. Um, Mm and went to see him and everything started to change. Like immediately mm. when I was in there, I knew something was really different about wow. this because it was yeah. extremely terrifying uh. to be there. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Um, I felt like I wanted to vomit out of fear. So I knew it was yeah. probably going to be good. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I wanted to run to the hill, you know, but I couldn't leave. Like I yeah. was like, so, um, and of course, I started getting very interested in psychoanalytic theory, and I started reading about that. Of course, I'm slightly a distraction from the real work, I think, too. But yeah, I just started, you know, realizing that it just I couldn't do it alone mm. anymore, and poetry wasn't enough. You know, mm. I can't, I couldn't read, and I couldn't write, and like I said, and. I always think, oh, poetry saves me, you know, poetry saves my life. It's like, in the end, it's like, it's not really enough. You do need, you Mm. do need the right kind of person to mirror what, what you're doing and say, this is what you're doing. And, and let's look at why you're doing this. Um, and it's a long, hard road. Um, but I've, you know, I've written a lot of poems about it. I, I should read you this poem that I wrote. Yes, please do. nails it. It's called Marcus Aurelius, so it was the sort of last vestiges of me, like, turning towards the Stoics. Okay, yeah. Sometimes I wake in the night with a headache, my mouth like an iron forge, looking for anything valuable in the debris. I turn on the tiny light clipped to my book, and I write things down in the spirit of Marcus Aurelius who said the finest bottle of wine is nothing but grape juice passing through the liver, no matter the beauty of a frosted glass or a night of big truth-seeking never recalled, the importance of putting something sweet into our mouths, turning it around and around on our tongues, attaching to it our missions, our purpose. In the end, we are all just filters, no more miraculous than the plainest of birds, who up close we can hardly believe, hmm. nor as focused as a deer tick. Nothing is given over to, nothing new is lit 
So often it is this. I wake up urgent, fatalistic, with the taste of nectar on my bows. I replay on a loop my one stoic consistency, my middle-of-the-night vow that I will start tomorrow, mm. the essential dismantling of how I live. Mm. So I think that idea of like starting tomorrow, not mm. today, mm-hmm. yeah, that was one pre- prevalent thing, but no, today. Well, I just, as you were even reading that, was imagining hearing that as I'm also laying in bed. What was the line? Lying in bed, the headache, my mouth like an iron forge. Of just how like that is the beautiful part of your work and what you're creating is the reaction that someone is going, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not actually unique in the world. And someone else has just put words to this experience that feels so dark and so lonely and so never ending. And yet someone else has had that experience. And that is the beautiful thing about what you're doing in the world. And what I love about it is that you don't get to show up for other people. And in your beautiful, thoughtful, intentional wordsmithing way, get to elicit that feeling of I'm not alone unless you're doing the brave work of saying when I am alone, I re- I'm recognizing that that's not healthy and okay and I'm going to reach out and, and stop yeah. it. And I'm not going to wait for tomorrow that I'm going to do that today. So I'm grateful, thankful that you're showing up for yourself so that you can show up for others because we need you and we need your work in the world. So thank you for sharing it with us today. You're so welcome, Liz. Thank you. This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit lizbohannon.co or follow either of us on Instagram. I'm at lizbohannon. They're at Human Group Media. And we do love hearing from our plucky community. Well, that's all for now. So until next time, stay plucky. Stay plucky.